Good evening. Hey, that was pretty good. I wasn't really expecting that. <laughs> um, our, our format tonight will be a little bit like last week. We'll have our Devo portion and then uh, sort of our class of discussion format afterward. But in the brief time that we do have here uh, tonight, I, I wanted to cover a, a few things, uh, just some few thoughts from some scriptures that we've probably heard before. And the lessons and the applications from them are, are fairly simple. Uh, but I feel like it's important sometimes to review or study the basics of the Bible, of Christianity. And the basics, to me, it's hard to get more fundamental than the teachings of Jesus. And I know I'm speaking a little bit just from my own opinion here, but I, when I look at the entire teachings of Jesus, Jesus, what I see is central or core to that is his very famous uh, Sermon on the Mount, which is where we will be uh, for just our devotional thoughts this evening. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew 7. And we'll look at a couple verses from Matthew 7. The Sermon on the Mount is, of course, his, his longest and one of his most well-known sermons. He covers a very wide variety of topics, sometimes seemingly just kind of jumping around. And, but what's beautiful about this whole sermon is that for, for each of the topics, there is, on one hand, easy, uh, immediate-to-grasp application. Right? You've heard it said, murder, but I say to you, do not even be angry. You've heard it said, uh, don't, com don't commit adultery, but I say to you, don't even lust after somebody. So there's, there's easy, uh, surface-level, immediate, graspable application, but there's also, and this is really what's so powerful about some of Jesus' teachings, there's also really, really impressive high-level theology going, here, going on here to those who knew the law. To, to, the, to the, the crowd gathered, many of whom were Jews, to those who knew the law, knew it very well, what Jesus was doing was an amazing explanation or commentary or, or opening up of the, the laws of Moses and the laws in, in the Old Testament and really interpreting them into a new way of, of viewing and understanding God. And that's, that's really just one of the reasons I love looking back and looking at these passages because there's the, there's the easy lesson, but if you really want to crank it up, there's also some hard lessons in there too. But, so I, you can kind of squeeze something out of it every time you review it, I guess. And that's just why I love some of these passages so much. So tonight we're going to look at Matthew 7 and beginning in verse 21. Just something that's been on my mind a little bit lately. Uh, Matthew 7 beginning in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And I guess one of the reasons this has been on my mind lately is really, at least when I think about it, this is probably to me one of the most terrifying passages of the New Testament. That many will come to him on that day and say, well, didn't I do this? And didn't I do this? And didn't I do this? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Kind of terrifying. Kind of terrifying. He's telling people, essentially, that, hey, uh, when that day comes, some of y'all are going to be surprised. And I don't know about you personally. I, you might have heard me make this joke before, but I don't like surprises. It doesn't work well when my brother wants to come to visit to town because he's kind of, uh, being the youngest child, he's always had to, you know, be desperate for attention. So he always tries to, tries to like to make an entrance. He likes surprises. It doesn't really pair well with me who doesn't. In fact... Very recently, the last time he was in town, my, my dad was coming. He told us he'd be there. And we're sitting in the car like the afternoon before. I think we had just gotten home from Sunday evening. My dad was coming in Monday morning. 
Priscilla says, hey, you talked to your brother lately. And I love my wife, and one of the reasons I love my wife is she's a horrible, horrible liar. <laughs> Which makes having a relationship really, really good. <laughs> but she, so she says, hey, have you talked to your brother lately? And I was, no, why? She's like, no, I was, I was, I was just wondering. I'm like, oh. Is my brother coming to town with my dad tomorrow? She's like, no, you can't say that. He said he wanted to surprise you. And I was like, why? <laughs> this is not how that being said, I, I don't like surprises. I've, no one has ever thrown me a surprise party, nor I ever wish them to. That's not a joke. That's not a hint. That's not, uh, that's not a sarcastic or jokingly saying, but I really want you to no, know. I don't like them. I like knowing about things that are happening in my, in my world. <laughs> and so, as you might imagine, I know we're kind of joking and laughing, but as you might imagine, when I hear Jesus say that some of y'all are going to be very surprised, uh, to me in particular, I find that a little terrifying. I've gone on road trips before, and one of the reasons I, I'm not really a planner in my day-to-day -day life, but when we go on road trips, I typically am, because I like, I like knowing how things are going to go, I like knowing what is expected of me, where I got to be, when I got to do this. That's why I like driving places rather than flying, because I don't like somebody telling me when I have to go or what I have to do when I get there. But it's very scary to me that Jesus is telling people that they could be surprised, but thankfully... This is paired with some good news because while he does say there are some who will be surprised, he also says that if you want to not be surprised, it's actually kind of simple. It's not easy, but it is simple. Do the will of my Father in heaven. That's what he says in verse 21. It's very scary to me to think that some people, will, when deciding their eternity, will be surprised. And unfortunately, I think this is one of those that only works one way because I don't think any of us are going to pass, wake up, and be like, huh, St. Peter and the pearly gates. You know, I really didn't expect to be here, but I guess here we are. But he really makes it sound like some people will think, well, didn't I do all these great things? And didn't I do all these things in your name? Didn't I heal all these people and cast out demons and, and do all these great works? And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And like I said, the, 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 I don't want to be too dark and gloomy, but the good news is there. And he says, the simple but not easy teaching is do the will of the Father. And I call it simple because I think we have a tendency to overcomplicate things. We want to ask questions about the Word of God. Well, what if I do this, but I don't do this? Or what, or what if I really like this teaching over here, but I ignore all of these over here that make me very uncomfortable? Well, Jesus says, well, do the will of my Father. What if, what, if, what if I'm just a really good person? Do the will of the Father. Well, what if church really isn't for me? And, you know, I, I, I try to pray and I try to read the Bible, but I just don't really. What's verse 21 say? It says, those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And yes, of course, if we are Christians, we should naturally, I would certainly hope our behavior and our attitude and our actions would categorize us as people who someone would look at and say, Brother so-and-so, they're such a good person. But don't get fixated on it and think that if I just am a good person, I will retroactively also be a Christian. Being a Christian, to follow Christ, means exactly what he says it means. It is he who does the will of my Father. And I think one of the, one of the biggest things uh, the world, kind of at large, outside of Christianity, outside of the church outside of really 
people of strong faith. I think one of the things the world gets wrong is that heaven will be full of good people and hell will be full of bad people. And when we get there, you know, those of us who have just been good people, we'll all end up in the happy place. And all those awful, terrible people like, you know, the murderers and, and all those people will be the ones going to hell. And unfortunately, <clears throat> that's not really, it's not quite that simple. But in a way, it's actually much simpler. <laughs> because he says, it is those who do the will of the Father. And I think the reason these kind of teachings make us uncomfortable is because I think there's very, very few people, especially the, those who believe in God and try to follow his will. Nobody, when asked, if I said, well, do you think you're a good person? No, which one of us would say no? <laughs> I'm an awful person. You don't need to get to know me. <laughs> I'm, t I'm terrible. We'll say we're flawed. If we're honest, good, God-fearing, Bible-reading Christians, we'll say, look, I'm a very flawed person. I'm a sinner. I'm, I need God. But of course, we like to think of ourselves as good people. But the truth is, when we are preaching, with, trying to reach somebody, evangelizing to somebody, sharing the gospel with somebody, you will find that the rest of the world kind of tends to think of themselves as good people too. And so the trick is getting them to understand that I'm not telling you you're a bad person. I'm not telling you... I'm not trying to tell you where you're going to go or not go in your eternal life. But what I'm trying to tell you to understand is that those who go to heaven are those who do the will of the Father. And unfortunately, sometimes people want us to tell, are you, are you saying that you're the, I mean, this is the number one question we get asked. Are you saying you're the only ones who think you're going to heaven? Well, if by the only ones you mean all those who are Christians who obey the will of God, yes. I think, all, I think only people who obey the will of God are going to heaven. But you know why I think that? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I want to look at just a couple more verses really briefly and we'll, we'll move on. If you look just up to verse 13. In the same chapter, he says, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. I remember reading a, one of those clinical study survey sort of things, and it said, 70% of people view themselves as possessing above average intelligence. You're not good at math. Somebody's wrong. <laughs> we, tend to, we tend to overinflate our own sense of success in a lot of ways. I'll include myself in that, certainly. But Jesus tries to really cut us off at the path and say, look, very few people are really going to get what I have to teach. Very few people are going to understand what I'm trying to tell you. Very few people are going to be willing to make the sacrifices and the commitment that it takes to obey the word of God. But I think the problem we have as just a society is the rest of the world. We, we kind of just want to believe that for most people it's going to work out. And the hard part is the truth is much harder than that. He actually says quite explicitly, for most people, it will not work out. Because it's hard to do what he calls us to do. And the people who are doing it will be few. But even though it is hard, 
And even though there are many who fail to grasp it and there are many who don't really understand this concept, the beauty is I believe it is still very simple. It is not always easy, but it's very simple because he tells us exactly what we need to do. We've looked many times at the verse where he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I want to look at just one more verse and we'll close. Flip over to Luke chapter 6, verse 48. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Luke 6, 46. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against the house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. I think I was talking about Noah the other day, and I said, and the rains came down and the floods came up. Well, if I was a better VBS student, I would have remembered that it's actually this passage in which the rains came down and the floods came up, because then the foolish man's house went, yeah. He tells us that the, if you are building your life, build your life on something that will not be shaken. And the truth is, that if we are building our life on the foundation that he has laid for us, as terrifying as that verse in Matthew might be to read just out of context and in a vacuum and just to think about, he tells us that if our house is built on this foundation, we do not need to be shaken because when the storms of life come and when judgment day comes, we can be assured of where we are going. It's why, as 1 Thessalonians tells us, we do not grieve as the world grieves. I know over the holidays, we've, the community in our area and our congregation even has endured the passing of loved ones. But the, the saving grace of all that, quite literally, is that those in the church, the funerals for church members, is not the same as funerals of those in the world. Why? Because we can be assured of where they are going. I promise you that there's nobody in here who dislikes surprises more than me. But none of us. None of us should be or want to be surprised when the trumpet blows and our number is called. If you are shaken in your faith, if you are feeling like you might have built yourself on sand, if there's something we can do for you, if you have any need, won't you come at this time while we So if you feel like there's an area, something you can do, something you can take care of, something you can uh, step up and pitch in with that, let it be known to just about anybody and we'll ensure that you have the opportunity to do that. still get situated here. Bear with me just a, a moment. Tonight, we're, we're going to pick up from actually where we left off last Sunday, which is in a way tangentially related to what we talked about this morning. Because last Sunday, I said I wanted to spend a couple weeks talking about spiritual fellowship, service, and leadership. Spiritual fellowship, spiritual service, and spiritual leadership. Because we've been talking about the church and what it means to be a part of the church and the purpose of the church and all these great things. And I wanted to explore just a little bit more about what it means or what the purpose of the church is aside from uh, evangelism and 
being the body of Christ, which were the two primary things we, we focused on uh, for a couple weeks before the end of the year. In last week, well, we'll start, I guess we'll pick back up with this. I put this out for discussion last week, but I want to throw it out there again. <clears throat> what are some things that, man, <clears throat> what are some things that come to mind when, when we talk about the purpose of the church? What are some things that come to mind for you for things we ought to do? Teaching. Teaching. There's one. Correcting errant. Yeah. Correcting errant, yeah. Correcting, uh, errant people. Teachings. What else? Benevolence. We mentioned like a dozen things last week. Okay. There's one. Service. Service. That's a good one. Certainly relevant to some of the things that have been going on. Fellowship. Fellowship. I'm not really looking for a right answer. I was just kind of throwing out some things that you guys think of. Because, I mean, y'all hear enough of what I think about certain things. I figure every now and then i got to open it up somehow. James mentions widows and orphans. Yeah. Uh, not neglecting widows and orphans in their uh, need. This is the love of Christ, I believe, what James says. Um, I, I ask us to throw out kind of these things. And we had a couple of verses we looked at last week, like 1 John 1, Acts 17, 11, 1 Peter 3, 15. And I want to uh, maybe, I don't want to say correct, because I'm not sure if there's people in here who necessarily think these things. But there are certainly people out there who, who I'm afraid sometimes view the church as a support group. That, well, whenever things are not good in my life, that's when I really need to be going to church. You know, whenever I'm in times of need, that's when I need to be going to church. Whenever, I, really, just as long as things are good, I can, I can exist and I can be out there and I can be all right. But sometimes it's okay to be in a good place spiritually and still go to church. Amen? <laughs> like, if anything, we, I mean, weep with those who weep, but also rejoice with those who rejoice. Which means uh, the church should also have people who are rejoicing from time to time. Um, but, but I fear too many people tend to view church as kind of a crisis response team. And absolutely, like so many things we talk about, absolutely a part of the church should be responding to crisis and responding to those who have needs. But that is far from the sole purpose of the church. Happy, healthy people belong in the church just as much as those who are in need. As I heard a, a former minister of mine say, we dwell even when we're well. And I kind of like that. I like things that rhyme because that usually means I'll actually remember them. <laughs> um, something else is, and we began talking about this last week. We talked, started talking about fellowship and how, you know, sometimes fellowship we can just be thinking about in the terms of like a social sense or fellowship meals and the potlucks and the lunches. But, but really, fellowship in a biblical sense is, a, is the idea of a living community that is tied together, that is bonded together, that is engaged together, that is connected together. And it's this recognition that underneath all of the things we do, it's, it's that phrase, the tie that binds, right? It's that idea that we are bonded in a way that is stronger than anything else out on the planet. Um, I've... I don't know if I've mentioned it here or not before, but something, <laughs> there's an old joke that says, how do you know if somebody is from Texas? And the joke is they'll tell you. But there's something kind of funny, at least being a little bit away from home, that when I meet somebody who's lived in Texas who is from there, I'm like, oh, that's awesome, because I'm from there. But then I remember that Texas has about 30 million people, and the odds of meeting somebody else from there is a lot higher than meeting somebody from, well, probably Stewart County. Thank you. Um, 
But even higher than that, even higher than finding somebody who likes the same team as you, even higher than finding somebody who, who practices the same trade as you, is this idea that there's a uniting bond that exceeds everything else we can find this side of eternity. And I'll tell you, we, uh, Priscilla and I got to go back home to a I say back home. We went back down to North Alabama uh, to a wedding to a young couple we had known and we went to church with uh, before moving here. And it was really, really good just getting to see some of those people from that old congregation. And as we were driving back, I said, you know, for only knowing people two years, I feel like I'm going to be connected to these people the rest of my life. And I'm not just saying that because it fits with what I'm saying, but I, I hope, I really hope you have the kind of relationships I'm talking about here because... What I'm getting at is that there is something about those people that really I only saw three to four hours a week at the most on average. And so if we looked over the span of time we spent together, it's not like we just spent days and days or lived together or were roommates or any really shared life all that much as a percentage of our time. But when we did, there was something, something that bonded us with those people that was different than anything else. And something else I've noticed is the more, and this was true even before I really got into ministry full-time, but the more church became a focus in my life, the more the connections with non-Christian people seemed to fade a little bit. And it wasn't necessarily intentional. It wasn't just because they would go out and do things I wouldn't do, which of course is pretty prominent to, I'll say, the 18 to 35 demo. There are people within that age group that tend to want to go do things that those of us who are Christians probably don't want to do quite as much or at all. But there was just something that I started noticing. Just our life goals weren't quite the same. Our, what we were chasing wasn't quite 100% in line with what they were chasing. Where we wanted to go with our life wasn't quite the same as where they wanted to go with theirs. And it really brought to light just how true this idea is that those of us who have fellowship with one another, it is stronger than anything else out there. I want to look, uh, we looked briefly last week at Acts 2.44. We'll, we'll flip back there, and then we'll look at a second verse here in just a minute. But turn to Acts 2.44. And if you get there before I do, someone go ahead and read Acts 2, verse 44 and verse 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Thank you. I was waiting for more, but I forgot verse 44 and 45 are pretty short. <clears throat> so yes, I, we can really look at this whole passage from, I'd say, about verse 41, 42, all the way through the end of the chapter. But I highlight this part to talk about just the idea that a, a spiritual family is those where any felt need as if it was my own need. It's that idea behind loving your neighbor as yourself. I always joke with people when we study that, that you know what, that's okay. I don't even always like myself, so I don't always have to like my neighbor. <laughs> but if I'm hungry, I feed myself. If I'm tired, I go to sleep. When I need groceries, I put groceries in my pantry. Loving your neighbor as yourself really just means recognizing their needs and meeting their needs as if they were truly your own. And so that is truly how we ought to be as a spiritual family. This is only somewhat related. I meant to say this off the top, but I wanted to mention that, as Jeff mentioned when we first started our service, I, I'm glad you guys are here. I appreciate y'all being here. 
but it's no secret that our Sunday morning numbers are a little different than the Sunday night, Wednesday night. And this isn't a Dover problem, I'm not trying to call anybody out. But at least as the teacher, and I've heard this from some of y'all in the feedback that I get in the conversations we have, what's interesting to me about that is I, I feel like we have the opportunity to get so much more out of Sunday and Wednesday nights than we really do the, the 20 to 25 minutes on Sunday morning of, in terms of teaching. I mean, obviously we spend more time on communion, more time worshiping, more time in prayer on Sunday morning. And of course, if you were to ask somebody when you go to church, Sunday morning is the first thing everybody thinks about more or less. But I encourage you, A, to continue doing as you are doing, as Paul told the Thessalonians, but also to help me and help us maybe sort of peer pressure in a positive way. If you know people who are just, I hate to put too fine a point on it, but if you know the people who are Sunday morning folk, encourage them to come tonight if you enjoy what we do on Sunday night and Wednesday night. Um, if you don't, you know, don't say anything. That's all right. Thanks for coming anyway. I appreciate it. I, I love that you're here in spite of that. But if you get as much out of it as I feel like we do, and I, I feel like the discussion and the openness and just the format of our Sunday nights lately, and especially Wednesday nights, allow us to get so much more out of Scripture and, and out of what we're studying. So I really, really encourage you if, you, if you know people, if you're close to people who are not quite as thorough in their engagement, I will say, Help me kind of encourage them on what they're missing out on. Help me uh, push them to be here. And I say that because something else I want to talk about in sort of this multi-week discussion on our Sunday nights here for a little bit is the idea of discipleship. Because if you remember when we read the Great Commission, he says, go into all the world and what? Preach the gospel. He says, he says three basically verbs that we kind of latched on to many, many weeks ago. You can also turn there. It's 28, 19, and 20. But he says, preach the gospel, baptizing them, and, and teaching them all that I have commanded you. Teaching is making disciples. That's why uh, other translations of the other gospel says that it uses that exact phrase, making disciples. In discipleship is a word that doesn't get talked about nearly as much as fellowship, but it's just as important because I would actually say it's a part of fellowship. And I, and I want you to think about this question. If you're willing to answer it, feel free to shout something out. But I at least want you to be thinking about it. When was the last time somebody else pushed you to grow spiritually? Because we know that we probably do some things on our own, and we probably try and pray, and we probably try and read, and we probably try to do things in our families. And if you're parents, you certainly are trying to push your kids to grow spiritually. Even if your kids have moved out of the house, you're probably still trying to push them to grow spiritually. But when was the last time somebody else pushed you to grow and mature in your own faith? Because that's discipleship. When someone comes along to you and, and you're not just pouring out to your immediate family, you're not, every parent wants to raise their kids the right way, I would take a guess, for the most part. So, of course, we want to do that. But again, if we're a spiritual family, if you're familiar with the expression, it takes a village to raise a child. I heard someone say one time, it takes a church to raise a Christian. Most of us, I have a feeling, it's safe to assume, would not leave our child to be raised by wolves. But far too often, when new Christians come into the church, we kind of let them be raised by wolves, in a sense. I, I know of churches, and I don't, I don't know spiritual maturity-wise that we have enough people that this would be necessary, but I know of churches that did new converts classes. 
And whenever they would have a certain number of people who had been baptized recently or who had visiting and just recently been added to the church, they would start this new converts class and say, let's go over some of the basics of, of what it means now that you are a Christian. And there's something to that idea. And, and I know we talk about all different things that we do with our format and our Bible classes and different topics and different approaches. But even if it's not a formal class, discipleship is still a super extra critical part of the work of the church. And so I want you to think about both, I guess, both sides of that question. When, when was the last time somebody else pushed you to grow spiritually? And then when was the last time you were pushing somebody else to grow spiritually? Because I love you guys, but there's one me and there's about 50 to 59 of you. <laughs> and the truth is, I think so many churches, just like we talked about ministry and the act of ministering this morning, there are many, many churches who, who, where they rely on the minister to be the source and the coach for spiritual growth for everybody in that congregation. And how many of you are teachers in your classrooms where your, where your ratio is... In public schools, what, 1 to 30, 25 to 35 kids per class? And you know well that in that one hour a day that you get with those kids, the amount of learning you can actually do in a room of 25 screaming 8th graders is about this much, right? But in the church, sometimes we think even if there's 100 of us, well, the person responsible for all the spiritual coaching and pushing is that one guy up there. And that really, if we examined it, A, doesn't make a whole lot of logical, rational sense. And two, doesn't look anything like the church that we find in the Bible. And I would argue the second is a little bit more important than the first. And so an analogy I guess I make with people sometimes is if you look at a football team, the head coach is the guy who's getting a lot of blame at least if you're a Dallas Cowboys fan, and in my experience, gets none of the credit when things are good. The players are the reason it's good, and the coaches are the reason a team is bad, right? <laughs> the players are talented, that's why they're good. The coach is horrible, that's why they're bad. <laughs> but even coaches have coordinators. They have positional coaches. They have people who are, I mean, down to the nitty-gritty, where there's only like one guy on the field doing that job at once. That guy has one coach who is looking at just the finer points of every aspect of his job. Because they understand that if... One guy was coaching 22 guys. He would be very poor at his job. And so I want us to understand that discipleship, especially in the context of fellowship, ought to be a, a church-wide event, not just because it needs everybody in order to work, but also because that's actually how it's called to be in the Scripture. And I wanted to look at one more text. Flip over to Acts 4. I was hoping we'd get to Titus, but we're probably not going to. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I mean, encouraging, especially because I, I, I heard this term or title or adjective descriptive thrown around a lot lately is they would say this person was, is really an encourager. And I love that idea of that they said, man, they were always lifting people up. And so absolutely, it is certainly our job to, 
to help people feel good about themselves, to make them feel a part of the family, to make them feel uh, connected and involved, even when we don't always feel like they are. But just as much a part of that is ensuring and really pushing the, the spiritual growth and development of each and every one of us. Um, I said Acts 4. Let me... Yeah, you'll have to forgive me. I'm using my backup Bible tonight because I left my other one at home. And so I'm, some of my notes and dog ears and bookmarked things are not quite where I wanted them to be. But there was two things, at least, at least two things I wanted to highlight from Acts chapter 4. And one of them is that when Peter and John get arrested, in verse 13... It says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And I think there's something so powerful about just that one line. And when we could look at the context of Acts 4 and their whole story and their whole ministry and, and how they got here. But I think there's something really, really powerful about this one line that says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were and in this context, uneducated, untrained means they didn't, they didn't train under the rabbi so-and-so. They weren't really raised in the typical Jewish schools of thought, and they weren't really brought up in the circles that the Jewish leaders expected them to be brought up in. But it says, nonetheless, it, they realized that they had been with Jesus. And if we look at the ministry of Peter and John in the book of Acts, it, it is probably best summed up by that line in verse 14 where it says, And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Their actions were such that even when some kind of accusation had been brought against them, even when they were facing punishment, even when they were in, literally in chains, it says they realized that they had been, been with Jesus and they could say nothing against them because the actions that they were doing made it so that they said, man, we, we can't look at what these guys are doing and really bring any charge against them because they're just they're doing too much good. <laughs> they're doing too many things right for us to put them in jail. <laughs> they said, we, we, we can't. We, we cannot bring anything against these men. And the part I really wanted to emphasize, at least from Acts chapter 4, is this line I make reference to quite often. And so I'll actually have somebody else read it for us. Someone read verse 19 and 20 of Acts chapter 4. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. As we've talked about so many times, when we have an understanding of what God has done for us, teaching others, bringing others along, helping others grow, bringing them along in their faith, edifying them, building them up, all of those things should really, should really be a natural outflow of understanding what God has first done for us. And it's the same way, <clears throat> I'm running out of space up here, hold on. 
It's the same way how when we talked about love, that when we understand God's love for us, it should be natural for us to love other people because we recognize that God made other people and that God loved us even as broken, fallen sinners. So what on earth do we not love other people for? In the same way, when we, when we understand the, the actions of the things that God has worked in us, it, whether it's fellowship, whether it's discipleship, whether it's evangelism, whether it's preaching and teaching, whether it's washing each other's feet, as Jesus told his disciples, helping with, with the building up of our own spiritual family ought to come naturally from, from an outflow of what, of what has been done for us. So I wanted to look at uh, one more, well, we won't finish looking at this tonight, but we'll at least start. Flip over to John 17. <clears throat> I mentioned when we first looked at Acts ch chapter 2, verse 43 through 47 last week, that if we were really looking at the example of the early church, I believe we would be struck by their oneness, by their unity by their fellowship that is so much more than just having lunch together once every three months, but actually the, the, the true connectedness of one spiritual family. And so I want to look at John 17, and just so we understand the context, <clears throat> John 17 is Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's his prayer that is quite possibly some of his... Some of his last words, at least to his father, before the crucifixion. And I feel like it, it expresses some of his most inner felt needs. Some of the things that are on his mind at the most stressful point in his life. The, the things that are pressing on him when he thinks about it. He's leaving this plane and he's leaving the disciples and he's, he's going to have to leave them and imbue them with some final thoughts and some final teachings. And he says, man, just, just one last thing I want to ask before I go. And he has this beautiful prayer in John 17 that I want to just read a few verses of. Look at John 17, verse 20. And I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may be, may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Something that's always struck me about the Gospel of John compared to the other Gospels is I think he often uses simpler language but talks about much more complex concepts. Because John doesn't talk anything about discipleship or anything about fellowship or anything about any really complex high ideas. He uses a bunch of very simple third grade level words. But if you look at the way he's using these words, he's talking about something that is incredibly, incredibly high level up there stuff. I mean, we could talk about the Trinity and Trinitarianism and modalism and all these crazy theologies and different ways the early church interpreted what on earth this whole you and I and I and me thing meant. But just the way he talks about it, I want the church to be just as close as you, the Father, and I are. I want them to be one just as you and I are. And what's interesting... What's interesting in verse 21 is he says specifically 
And different translations make this emphasis more clear than others. But he says specifically that I pray that they may also be one in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I think we started late, so I'm going to take all the five minutes I still got. But he says, I want them to be one so the world can believe that you sent me. And even though Jesus says this to the Father and apparently to the the listening ear of John the disciple 2,000 years ago, I want you to think about how many conversations you can have with non-Christian people in the United States of America today who will say, I don't really go to church because there's a million different churches out there. How can you all be right if you all believe different things? If we're quite honest, our whole system would confuse the heck out of just about anybody who did not grow up in some kind of Christian church. And I don't blame them. Because it doesn't really make a lot of sense if we look at all the people who call themselves Christians. And I'll be careful with this. While I, while I do want to strive for uh, unity in the body of Christ as a whole, unity is often hard when there are people who are going to take exclusive stances on a topic. Some people say it has to be this way, and some people say it has to be this way. And so how do you unify people when they're in different camps like that? Probably not something we'll get to in the next two minutes. But I, I want you to understand that when he, when he talks about this, and he talks about being one, and, and notice how many times he says it just in those three verses we read from verse 20 to 23 he says that they may be one they may be holy one that they may be perfect and one they may be one as we are one over and over he says this but he says specifically so that the world may believe that you sent me something amazing about the early church at least to me is how 11 of the 12 disciples ended up Martyrs for the truth they were trying to bring. And when we look at this from sort of a, I guess you could say if you're trying to talk to somebody, Christian evidences, that's what this is called, Christian evidences, and you're trying to talk to somebody who's not a Christian, to me it's very, very hard to call all 11 of the 12 disciples crazy liars who died for a faith that had no real basis in reality. If these men went 11 or 12 different ways, and each started their own churches, and each went about their own business and their own faith and their own interpretation of events and couldn't agree on really who Jesus was or what he taught or what he believed, it would be very hard to understand who Jesus was. But the truth is, every single one of them, at least those who wrote books and those who we saw books written about, who participated in this inspired word that we have today, were really of one mind and faith and 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 of one faith that they were all willing to go to the grave saying, not only do I affirm this to be true, but I would stake my life on the ability to share it. That's crazy. Like, Don't take for granted the book in front of you for a second and just think about what we're talking about. Like, that's insane. But Jesus knew and he said, if you will be united... And he's not just saying if you will be an interfaith that has no stances on doctrine. I want to be clear. He said if you will obey my commands, if you will be of one spiritual family, nothing, if you have that faith that Peter and John said that we cannot help but speak of what God has done for us, of course people are going to believe you. Of course, the problem, if we're willing to be honest with ourselves, 
is I think sometimes people look at what we believe and they look at what we do and they ask questions that make too much sense. They ask questions that we don't want to answer. They say, well, if you believe this, why do you do this? Or if Christians believe this, why are Christians acting this way? And those questions are very, very hard to answer. And so hopefully we can strive uh, to have unity, not just in faith and in our understanding of the word, but actually uh, be the spiritual family he calls us to be. I don't remember who Jeff deputized for closing prayer, but I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to whoever that was.